Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific Century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Gamble. And I'm Rich Verma. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business, and thought leaders. Thanks, Rich. Today we are thrilled to be joined by a great friend and a colleague, Ambassador Kurt Tong. Kurt has over three decades of experience at the very highest levels of the U.S. government, the U.S. Foreign Service, and most recently serving as U.S. Counsel General for Hong Kong and Macau from August 2016 to June 2019. Prior to his time in Hong Kong, Kurt served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Economic and Business Affairs and was Ambassador for APIC. And Kurt also was the Deputy Chief of Mission for the U.S. in Japan from 2011 to 2014, and the Director for Korean Affairs at the State Department, Director for Asian Economic Affairs at the White House, and also participated in the six-party talks with North Korea. So after retiring from the State Department, Kurt joined our team here at the Asia Group as a partner, bringing his deep experience to help our clients further their interests in Japan and across East Asia. Kurt, we're thrilled to have you part of the team, and we're uh, happy to welcome you to Tealeaves today. Well, I'm really happy to be here and, and particularly excited that uh, the Asia Group was able to hire me, even though I have a strange first name. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we, we struggle when, when the word Kurt goes up, two heads turn here. And so we're neither neither of us are used to that. So, so Kurt, listen, we want to start with your most recent assignment in Hong Kong. As you know, Hong Kong has been in the news now, uh, headlines really, for months. We have violence on the streets. We have chief executive who is struggling in between public demands for change or rolling back certain initiatives and Beijing clearly unhappy with the current situation. We also have concerns about a giant power, China on its border, that is playing a larger role in its public and civil affairs. Give us a sense of what it was like serving essentially as the American representative, the ambassador, during this incredibly delicate time. Well, I'm glad you didn't ask me the question that I usually get, which is, you know, did I expect this to happen in Hong Kong, what's happened this summer? Because then I have to admit that I did not see this coming. You know, the U.S. position in Hong Kong is a very important one. We've got a huge relationship, huge economic relationship, and also a historical legacy of being very tightly bound to the people of that city. Uh, culturally, through education, experiences, and the like. And uh, and so our voice matters there. We also have some conflicting interests in terms of how the United States views that city and uh, its utility of the United States and what we're actually hoping to have happen there. And uh, the difficulty of being the, well, the U.S. ambassador to Hong Kong was stepping between the urge to see Hong Kong as a democracy problem and seeing it primarily as an economic problem or as an autonomy problem. And, and that can end up pulling the United States in different directions. Well, Kurt, I want to—I uh, actually just want to kind of level set for the audience here because we have gone back and forth between consul general and ambassador. But it, it matters because it matters what kind of relationship the United States has with Hong Kong. Maybe you can just give us a little bit of context sure. of why we have a consulate there and consul general. Sure. Well, Hong Kong— 
for people that aren't aware of this, I think many are, but the, Hong Kong is a special administrative region under China that has been given a 50-year guarantee of a high degree of autonomy. Um, that's that's written down in a treaty between Great Britain and, and China, and it provides for Hong Kong to really operate uh, very much as a distinct entity and on almost all issues other than defense and foreign affairs. That's It's not a country, so I wasn't an ambassador. But for, for most practical purposes, Hong Kong makes its own decisions in terms of international economic policy, the relationship that it has with, with other countries on law enforcement, education issues, visa issues, all of those things, it operates separately. And therefore, and in order to reinforce that, we treat it separately. But the, this question of autonomy, uh, I guess maybe let me ask you, seems to be the central kind of underlying tension here with the extradition bill that was about to go through. Just tell us about that, because it seems like they're very different views on how much uh, autonomy Hong Kong actually has, depending well, on where you sit. That's right. And as a political analyst, I often looked at Hong Kong and was trying to decide whether there were um, there's, you know, the traditional way of looking at any society's haves versus have-nots. And I tried to transpose that onto Hong Kong society and thinking about how that place works. It didn't work um, and, as an intellectual undertaking. In fact, the, the main division within the city is how to approach the mainland. That is the fundamental question that everyone thinks about all the time. And that's related to autonomy. How much autonomy should they expect? And what's the best way to get it? And there's an accommodationist approach where you get along with the mainland and coax the mainland China into not messing with Hong Kong. And there's a confrontational approach. And that drives Hong Kong politics. And it's, and it's really the fundamental question. So, Kurt, you know, it was often said, I, I remember I had the honor of being there during reversion in 1997, was it? 1997, yeah. yeah. And uh, people were saying even then that Hong Kong was once a Western city with Chinese characteristics, but it was increasingly a Chinese city with some Western characteristics. So uh, that may be overly simplistic. How, how do you describe what has happened in Hong Kong over the last few decades, and what's your expectation for the trajectory over the course of the next several years? So over those two decades, there was actually up till now, and hopefully it continues into the future, a very successful model of Hong Kong being a Chinese city with Western characteristics. Part of China, but operating both by law and by practice, and in terms culturally, in terms of how the internet worked communications separately from the, the rules in the mainland. Uh, and that has been an extraordinarily successful model. The issue has become that China, in looking at Hong Kong, has two ways of seeing Hong Kong. When China is thinking like a, a, a country that wants to grow as fast as possibly economically, it backs off of Hong Kong because Hong Kong operates better when China's not messing with Hong Kong's internal affairs. Politically, when China thinks like an authoritarian state um, interested in, in controlling people's behavior and political activity, which has only been reinforced under President Xi's leadership, it, it looks at Hong Kong in a very different way and becomes more interventionist. The thing that, that I was flagging as consul general, quietly 
to the Hong Kong authorities, but also to, to Beijing, was that they were starting to not be clear-headed about that. And they were uh, institutionalizing interference in the city in ways that was increasing anxiety among the Hong Kong people. And I think that that's what we've seen happen. And the anxiety is much deeper than actually even I understood. When I had a chance to work with you, and we worked together at the State Department when Rich was there as well, I can remember I had a few counterparts that I met regularly, almost on a weekly basis, either here in Washington or Beijing, or in other capitals where I was traveling, Chinese interlocutors and friends. There were a few occasions where I saw the harshest and angriest kinds of interactions with Chinese diplomats. And interestingly for me, it was mostly over Hong Kong, mm-hmm. a real sense that we were the black hand right. behind political demonstrations. I would often ask myself, like, do you really believe that we are the force that's driving this? Or is this a useful and necessary excuse? Help us with that, Kurt. Do they really believe the political rhetoric and propaganda that we're the ones that are driving this effort. I, I do note that uh, you know a group of Hong Kong students were singing "God Bless America." I, I think that's right. for us more than anything else. But what, what, well, that, you that's aimed at, at actually enticing the United States to become more involved mm-hmm. in what's going on there. People often believe what they want to believe, as opposed to things which have actually been factually presented to them. Mm-hmm. And mainland leaders want to believe that. The fact that Hong Kong people don't really want to be just like everybody in the mainland must be inspired by somebody else, because otherwise it's a comment on their society. It's a cognitive dissonance problem. And so they gravitate naturally. It's, I mean, part of it is a traditional Leninist tool of communications and disinformation and all that. But I think it actually is deeper than that, that there's an emotional reaction on the mainland side. Like, why, why are these ungrateful Hong Kongers not just ecstatic that they're part of the People's Republic of China, the biggest and, and fastest growing um, country in the world, and uh, and, they ha- and there's an emotional reaction to that, which mm-hmm. which I think needs they need to keep that in check as they um, deal with Hong Kong. On one of the visits that I was there and you were uh, serving, we had a, a dinner together, and I remember I then subsequently had a series of meetings with Hong Kong friends, and I was struck at how this was during a period of substantial tourism that had really picked up. I was shocked at how some of the Hong Kongers talked about the Chinese that were visiting. And there was not only a political overtone, but a class overtone. How does that play out? Well, it doesn't help because the Hong Kongers don't always keep a poker face when they're you know, interacting with mainland folks um, in that tourism context or in a business context. And that actually, in order to get along and have everything function properly, it's important for people to be respectful of those differences on both sides, and and often they're not. Uh, Kurt, you mentioned that you were surprised at the level of the demonstrations. 
I guess two questions about that. One, I imagine a similar level of surprise in mainland China about what what has happened. Secondly, I, I mean, I'm just blown away at these demonstrations and these protests and the courage, the unity, how vocal folks have been out. I, I just am blown away by that, this, this uh, yearning for democracy. Well, I think it's, there's a yearning for democracy and, that, and for autonomy. And, is, there, and, is there a difference there between autonomy and Well, there, and there are many Hong Kongers are, would be happy with autonomy, and um, many of them also want more democracy. The two are obviously closely related. Um, but there are many Hong Kongers who are willing to not have a, a fully or even predominantly democratic form of governance as long as they feel that their views are being reflected in governance through through good governance. And they have a sense that there's autonomous decision-making being made, Hong Kongers making decisions for Hong Kongers. And, that, and uh, both of those have been eroded, which creates... Uh, the level of, of anxiety you see. I think what's happening with the protests right now actually is something new, which is a self-sustaining uh, piece of anger between a certain class of, of protesters and the authorities reacting and counter-reacting to one another in a chain of events, which is actually somewhat divorced from the underlying issues of, of autonomy and, and democracy. And I'm not sure how, how that's going to play out. Can you give us a sense that you, whatever you can say about this, whenever we see the kind of secret police come in and start, you know, attacking uh, either civilians or protesters, where is that order or direction coming from? Uh, is there kind of a direct line? I mean, we kind of assume this is mainland telling Hong Kong authorities, you know, it's, it's time to, to yeah. crack down on this. What, it's actually more, it's what, actually, I don't want the get, reality. Might I don't be. know how far into the weeds you want to get on this, but it's actually more complicated yeah. than that. The, for example, when there was a group of white t-shirted guys who went and beat up some of the black t-shirted protesters at a, at a train station, that's about a month, month and a half ago. And there was another sub- subsequent. Who, 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 how so, do those break down? Who are okay, so people? the black T-shirt people have. It's now become the demonstration uniform for the pro-autonomy, pro-democracy protesters to wear black T-shirts. It it happened on their second big march. Uh, they wore black. The first one they wore white, and then now it's been black ever since. And so, as a reaction to that, there were some uh, northern rural Hong Kong men, all men, who put on white t-shirts and went and beat up some of these protesters on their way home. I personally do not think that that was orchestrated, um, cued by the Hong Kong authorities or ordered by anyone of responsibility on the mainland side. I think it was a, a pro-Beijing group in Hong Kong taking advantage of the situation to try and get, for lack of a better word, brownie points um, um, with, the, with the mainland side. And they actually made the situation worse. And I'm not sure that what they were doing is, would, would have been welcomed by the PRC government. How much are the protesters looking to the U.S. for moral support, for encouragement? I, I've, I've noticed that President Trump's either tweets or comments on this have been pretty subdued. They haven't been that enthusiastic. And 
it's been curious to try to figure out what what he's been trying to convey. Well, I think that you know the president's got a number of issues that he's trying to pursue with China and and has his own way of going about things. But the 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 Hong Kongers are definitely, I think, interested in not just the United States but other nations showing um, interest because they think and I. I believe they're probably right, that international interest serves as a bit of a check on how the the authorities react to the protests and the autonomy movement, democracy movement in general. Because the fact of the matter is that Hong Kong is a win-win-win proposition. Uh, if it works, it's good for China, it's good for everybody else, the United States and all the other countries, and it's good for Hong Kongers. If it doesn't work, it is bad for everybody. For, for foreigners, for China, and especially for Hong Kongers. If one of those three pieces loses confidence in how Hong Kong's operating and, and actively pulls out, in a sense, from that understanding of one country, two systems framework, the thing, it could really start to weaken um, quickly. And so international reaction, China always says it's foreign interference, in fact, it's not foreign interference. It's the U.S. government saying that the U.S., if the act is passed, charging the U.S. government with looking more closely at assessing Hong Kong's autonomy and responding to the reality, which is a responsible activity for the U.S. to do for the U.S., by the U.S., for our own interests. But that you guys don't have a legitimate voice in Hong Kong's affairs thing needs to be pushed back on consistently. But it doesn't need to be done in the sense that, that saying China's necessarily the bad guy. I think China's part of the solution to this situation and, and should, be mm. dis, should be talked to in that tone of voice, that this is China's city and China can do the right thing and, then, and everything will be great. Yeah, it's interesting, Kurt. I'm not sure everyone would, would necessarily accept every element of that framework, but I yeah, appreciate there are a lot that. of opinions. Yeah. So can I ask, so two things. Before you took this job as uh, Consul General in Hong Kong, you were the primary trade representative at the State Department, the ambassador for APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Consortium. Where do you think America's role as a commercial and economic player in Asia currently stands? So you're at the hub you know, everything that goes on in terms of trade and commerce and finance, Hong Kong is at that hub. So you really had a fingertip feel about how financial institutions, other companies were judging and assessing the United States. What do you see there? I think that generally speaking, Americans are insufficiently confident and underappreciate the strength of the United States financially, technologically, in terms of our economic throw weight in the region. We're, we're big, we're strong, we're talented, and we're well-funded. But I worry that as a nation we're approaching or maybe even have slightly passed the crescendo of our level of influence on both economic policy and business activity in, in the Asia-Pacific and... Part of that is the is everybody else is getting getting better, getting mm-hmm. stronger, mm-hmm. which is natural and a good thing um, from the principle of, of a rising tide 
floats all boats. Um, but part of that is our own retrenchment and uh, diminishing self-confidence in international economic affairs. And if there's one appeal that I have, you know, we've got a political campaign coming up in the United States, I hope that both parties really kind of take a little more self-confident view of what we should be doing in the world. Our economy is strong. We've got great companies. We've got good employment. We've got some serious issues in the United States around income distribution, around infrastructure, around education, and we should confront those. I mean, everyone says this is not an original observation, but taking it as a whole, we should be confident, active, and proactive on the policy front. And I'm really concerned that we're, we're ceding the policy front to, to other countries. So, Kurt, at a personal level, like you as a foreign service officer, your job was to live abroad. My first interactions with you, you were living in in uh, Japan and elsewhere. Uh, my question is, so you returned after this long stint abroad. You've now settled back in Washington. What's the biggest, you know, we talk about culture shock, and we often think about culture shock moving and living abroad, but sometimes the biggest culture shock is moving back home. So what did you, what have you noticed like, wow, this is hard to readjust to back in the United States? Well, Americans living overseas, um, usually because, well, always you're in the minority in whatever society you're in. People get together and they talk a lot and there tends to be good communication, differences of opinion about things, but it's generally pretty collegial. It's like small town politics. And coming back to the United States and seeing everyone yelling at each other all the time <laughs> is really disconcerting. What do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What do I mean by that? Yeah, exactly. The 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 I mean turning on the TV it's just it just drives me bananas that that everyone's always got to be screaming all the time rather than listening. And something's happened in American culture. I hope it it moves back in the other direction where listening's no longer seen as a as an important value. Kurt, can I go back to your APEC assignment? Can you just give us a, a one minute on what is APEC and what does <laughs> it actually do? Because so, most of us have forgotten. But secondly, when I was in India, there was a lot of discussion about India potentially becoming a member of, of APEC, which they wanted and a, a number of people in the U.S. wanted. Uh, but that was not a uniform U.S. position and, and it didn't happen. And... Um, I wonder if you could just shed a little light on, sure. on that. Sure. So APEC is a 21 economies that get together and discuss economic policy mm-hmm. and try to reach consensus about what the direction of policy should be. And it can be in a, a variety of areas, whether it's environmental policy, energy policy, you name it, health and welfare, all kinds of things. Um, the, mo- the top item on the APEC agenda has always been trade liberalization opening markets to one another, trade and investment liberalization. And the reason why India wasn't welcomed to APEC with open arms was the sense that India wasn't ready to... A closed economy. Yeah, Yeah. more closed economy, is more reluctant to open up its market, and therefore being so big and being... you know Because there's a variety of views within APEC and a variety of degrees of openness. But, But having another big really big economy that wasn't very openness-oriented coming into the conversation could really slow things down on the liberalization front. My, I, at the time, I'll confess, I was not in favor of India joining APEC for precisely that reason. This is, in, this is about six, seven, eight years ago. Now, or four or five, I don't know, however many. To be honest, now that TPP is done, 
I have a different view because APEC's mission was to create TPP. TPP would not have existed without APEC. Interesting. And it's it's a child of APEC. It created a high quality uh, binding agreement among 12 of the most important economies of the Asia Pacific, put enormous pressure on China to liberalize. And then the US made this enormous error of backing out, which was absolutely crazy and bad for every single American citizen. But now that, it, now that TPP's done, Maybe it's time for India to come in. We can bring India along because it's India's making sure that RCEP doesn't happen. So, Rich, I was at the White House one day, and I had said earlier in a in an interview that India belonged in APEC, and I got a call from Kurt Tong, and he goes, <laughs> "Boy, are you in trouble!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I hung up and said, "Really?" I said, "I thought this was okay to say." The second I, I hung up, yeah. the master well, there was a whole me. there was a whole cabal of of the White House, USTR, and myself that were basically making sure that India didn't get an APEC. But that's one of the issues that the, the two Kurtz didn't always see eye to eye on. But, <laughs> but I guess I've, I've come around, but for a substantive reason, which is that now you know, now we've got this benchmark of what TPP should be. And, and we should our goal should be to get everybody into TPP in the Asia-Pacific, including India. Oh, that's interesting. You think India should be part of TPP? Everyone well? should be part of TPP. The entire planet should. Um, because the WTO approach stalled doing the, the plurilateral region-based approach to trade investment liberalization is the best approach. I'm still convinced of that, even though the U.S. lost, it, our, our knees got wobbly and, and we pulled out, but hopefully we'll get strong again and, and jump right back you, in. You think we will be a member of TPP? It's just a matter I, of time. I, I think it's a matter of time. I hope we do it faster instead of because uh, the longer we wait, the more it costs us. Uh, let me, I know we're running out of time, but just on the Go back to the Hong Kong question. If you had to look into the future, uh, any sense of where this is heading or, or what we should look at kind of coming up in the next few weeks and, and months? Well, I I would like to see, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but I would like to see the, the mainland Chinese government signaling publicly to both the Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong people that they're going to empower the Hong Kong government to deal with the situation without having to check back with China on every little aspect. So it, the question of whether to what to do about reviewing police activity, whether there should be a commission of inquiry or not, for example, that should be a Hong Kong decision, not a mainland decision. And and the question about what to do about, about the, the tenure of the chief executive or other sweeteners or ways that they can bring the people of Hong Kong back onto a positive footing, that should be something that, that Hong Kong does by itself, not not micromanage, because the micromanaging slows things down and also just really builds distrust. Kurt, this has been terrific. Really wonderful tour, not only of your most recent adventures in Hong Kong, but the larger picture of American uh, trade and economics. I only wish I'd brought you along on APEC. The rich and Kurt, I was... <laughs> Uh, distant. I was in the very back of in the caboose. The rich right. leadership on Indian APEC, but maybe maybe we'll have another chance at it at some point. So thank you, great. Well, that thank you, you. join us. We really appreciate it, and we're thrilled that you've joined our firm as well. Rich. Yeah, Kurt. Thanks. Thanks for your service. Incredible. Uh, your insights are, are terrific, and thank you to our listeners as well. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Thanks a lot. Thank, Thank you. you.